This is Comic Geek Speak 1609, Book of the Month, Preacher Book One. And welcome to the show. I'm Brian Chrisman. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Chris Everly. And I'm Bill Ellis. All right. And this is our book of the month on, as Bill so eloquently said, Preacher Book One. This is going to cover the Preacher issues 1 through 12, which I believe is the the first three Mm storylines. What is contained in the uh, first volume of the most recent series of uh, hardcovers slash trades that uh, DC Vertigo has put out. Correct. We should point out, as Mer just mentioned, DC has has been repackaging a lot of its Vertigo titles that are in trade. So whereas Preacher was I, – I want to say it was originally nine volumes. That's nine correct. Nine volumes, yeah. Yeah, now they've repackaged – what is it, Billy, five or six? Uh, six books. Yeah, six books. So that, then they're doing that with all their Vertigo titles now, really, uh, gradually over time. So They've done that with Lucifer and Ex yeah. Machina. They're working on Why the Last Man right. is almost done. So just if you're shopping, just bear that in mind. I guess we decided a couple months ago to want to do Preacher – because uh, the Preacher TV series on AMC has just debuted. Um, this is not going to be talking about that pretty much at all, just concentrating on this first uh, collection. Uh, Bill, have you and Danielle seen the first episode of Preacher yet? Yep, we watched it last night, um, and it is uh, definitely going to be different from the book, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm definitely going to be watching it. Okay, because Pants and I have not seen it yet. Right. So. It's, uh, it's, it's really quite good. It keeps the spirit of the book very, very alive while taking you on a completely different journey. Like, you recognize uh, uh, familiar things, but they're using them in new ways. So it's Interesting. Okay. And Cassidy nailed him. <laughs> All right. Once they, once they got that actor uh, attached. I, okay. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. He's, he's just an amazing Cassidy. I'll look forward to it. All right. He even had the sunglasses. There was some concern that he lost the sunglasses along the way, but he's got them. <laughs> All right, so we may have a bigger discussion on the TV show in the future. And, and also in the future of this episode, hopefully, we'll be joined by um, uh, Danny. We'll be coming in a little later. Uh, yep. She ain't going to make it tonight, so it'll just be us um, we have on us right now. Uh, and, of course, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for the um, first trade for Preacher. And, of course, with our book of the months, they are brought to us by... InStockTrades.com. Speaking of trades, it's your place to go on the Internet for big, big bargains on collected editions of comic books, hardcover, softcover, you name it. They're there for you, and if you see it on the website, it's guaranteed in stock, hence the name. If you go to their website at InStockTrades.com, you'll find they have a short list of deals of the week set up there that are 50% off. So you've got uh, Superman Adventures featuring some, uh, I believe, some Mark Miller stories in there. There's a Symmetry trade paperback. There's a Green Lantern, New Gods, Godhead trade paperback. And on the right-hand side of the uh, front page of their website, they always have a list of their top ten bestsellers. Shane and I always like to shout out those just for the uh, listener's interest uh, whenever we do an InStock Trade sponsored episode. Uh, So number ten on their top sellers list right now is Lazarus Hardcover, Volume 2. Incredible. Yep, well-deserved, as Chris will tell you. Uh, All-New X-Men Hardcover, Volume 4, is at the number 9 spot. Number 8 is We Stand on Guard, Deluxe Hardcover. Outstanding. Yep, also got the Everly Seal of Approval. Uh, Number 7 is The Amazing Spider-Man Omnibus, Volume 1, New Printing. Ugh. 
Very, they did go the whole run. Mm-hmm. Very early stuff. That's 45% off. Uh, number six, Kingdom Come 20th Anniversary Deluxe Edition hardcover. Is I that, got chills. That, that was 1996, wasn't it? <laughs> Making this old feel old. <laughs> uh, top seller number five, Scalped hardcover. Oh. Uh, book four, Deluxe Edition. <laughs> really hitting Jason a lot of Jason Iron you. begins the march to glory. Hitting a lot of Chris's C spots here. Uh, <laughs> Daredevil by Wade and Somni. Oh. Volume 5 hardcover. Oh. Number 3, Uncanny X Men Omnibus hardcover, Volume 1, a new printing. Claremont, Cockerman, Burn, baby. There we go. That's the stuff. A little bit of Len Wein, too, I believe. That's right. I Forgive me, that's true. Uh, Gotham Central Omnibus hardcover. Oh. <laughs> Brubaker, Rucka, and Michael Lark. Good stuff there. I've well, I've been told anyway. That's uh, that's a series that I've recently decided I need to be collecting. Um, Murd, you that's that's a book, magnificent police procedural in the DC universe, tremendous. Mm. Yep, I'll, I, I will be checking it out. And number one right now at InStockTrades.com is Guardians of the Galaxy by Abnett and Lanning, omnibus hardcover, and all ten of these things are forty five percent off right now at. Oh, actually, I, I misspoke. Uh, the n- number 10 selection is only 42% off. We Stand on Guard is also 42 But all 10 of these are either 42 or 45% off at InStockTrades.com. Go and uh, check out the bargains they have to offer you on collected comics. Excellent. I have for quite a while uh, not really participated in Book of the Months because I just uh, – it's not something that I really, I really – care to get into uh, my reviewing skills are, are quite uh, lax however says I, you says me says a lot of people Indeed. says the word on the street is but anyway I, I really want to talk about preacher and more here what everybody else's experiences with preacher so if i'm wrong for this format forgive me i just want to start out that i was got back into comics around like 89 90 and i completely missed preacher 100 it was nowhere on my radar didn't know anything about it, it was years before I even really caught it caught up on it Got the first uh, trade at one of, I think, Chris's Wild Pig sales maybe like five years ago. Read the first one. Had trade two. Didn't read it till actually around Christmas time when I started reading everything uh, from Preacher. We got the trade sent to us from uh, Rob Anderson, one of our mm-hmm. listeners. So I've read the whole series right now, and I'm ashamed that I didn't read it at the time. So good. So well illustrated, having Ennis and Dylan on the main title for the entire run was clearly uh, a smart move. Um, no, no fill-ins. There were some other spinoffs that had the same writer but different artists. Just wonderful book, wonderful, wonderful start. The first issue was a great start. Everything you need to know was in the first issue, more or less. And I'm just so angry it took me so long to read this. I really enjoyed this. And I'm curious to hear what everybody else's uh, stories is on Preacher. All right, if, uh, let's pen to me next. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the preacher virgin in the group. Okay. Uh, yeah, Shane and I were going to bear that uh, burden together, but uh, you know, family obligations keeps him from participating tonight. Uh, so I get to be the, uh, uh, the, the lone virgin up here. But Shane will share his thoughts on, on preacher eventually, I'm sure. Um, so uh, th- this is the first time I've, uh, I've read any of this material. Um, when it first came out back in uh, 1995, I'm thinking it was. Yes. Um, I was uh, a mere lad of 16, and I don't believe the, the comic shop I frequented at that time uh, had a policy not to sell suggested for mature reader Vertigo titles uh, to minors. 
Um, so I would not have been able to read it even if I'd wanted to. Certainly I saw the solicitations for it and I thought to myself, this does not look like something that I, you know, a conscientious church-going young lad of 16 <laughs> really wants to meddle with. Um, and reading it now, I think it probably would have been a little much for the 16-year-old me. Um, so I'm, I, uh, don't really share your self-recrimination, Brian, at having not read this as it was coming out. Okay. Uh, I think it's a good thing that I've waited as long as I have because now I can handle it. I can come to it uh, with a bit more of a, a level head. I think my, my, my faith has deepened and strengthened enough that it can take a few uh, pot shots uh, from Ennis and company. So, but I was aware of Preacher as it was uh, being published. I mean, it was one of uh, Wizard Magazine's uh, pet series, and they uh, gushed about it quite frequently. And so from write-ups there, I was able to learn a few things about the characters of Jesse Custer, Tulip O'Hare, Cassidy, the hard-drinking Irish vampire, Arseface, Hairstar, and uh, other members of our cast of characters. And I thought, okay, this sounds awfully bawdy, and uh, it's something that I... Maybe I'll dip into when I'm a little older. So when I was in college, I did eventually pick up a copy of the first trade, you know, the, the original edition of the trade, which was you know, issues one through seven. And I had it in my possession for at least 15 years, and I, uh, I kept looking at it and thinking, nah, not now. <laughs> but finally, this, this was the occasion, and I thought, let, let's extend a little extra thanks, too, to our friend Rob uh, Anderson of Panda Dog Press for having uh, sent us his copies of all nine of the first series of trades. Uh, he was moving, and he was going to give them to Goodwill otherwise, or to a library. And so he just thought, eh, I'll send them to the CGS guys. So thank you very much, Rob. You are sort of an unofficial second sponsor of this episode. <laughs> and without your help, um, well, I'm sure we would have gotten around to doing a Book of the Month episode on Preacher eventually. I'm surprised it took us. 11 years as it is. Uh, but uh, thank you for uh, you know, precipitating uh, this episode that we're doing right now. All right. Um, so having finally gotten around to reading you know, the first couple installments of Preacher here, you know, the first, uh, well, I guess it would be like uh, uh, whatever is covered by the original, uh, the, the first two of the original trades is up to like issue 17. The first uh, like one and a half. Yeah. Yeah, it's up to 17. Well, well no, I've, actually, I've read the first two of the original trades, so I've read past the our stopping point for this episode. Yeah. Uh, we're only talking about 1 through 12. But yeah, I think 1 through 17. Yep, okay, so I've read the first 17 issues. And um, I think what I'd read about it in Wizard uh, prepared me uh, pretty safely for it. Um, as I've said, I think I uh, was more entertained and less scandalized by it than I would have been if I'd read it at 16. Um, you know, Ennis is uh, – you know, he's – this is kind of the series that made Ennis's name. You know, he'd had a couple of uh, DC titles that he wrote before this. He did a run on Hellblazer. Uh, he had uh, The Demon, which is more of a DC Universe title. Um, but Preacher was like the first American creator-owned comic on which he was able to really cut his teeth and uh, just go crazy and tell whatever story he wanted to tell with whatever characters he could come up with on his own initiative. And uh, it's, uh, the, 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 the end result is actually pretty impressive. Um, you know, I, I think of uh, well, there are a couple of comments that Joe R. Lansdale in his intro to the first uh, trade volume uh, are, are uh, well germane to what we're going to be saying here. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, this preacher pretentious it ain't, but smart it is. So you know he's uh, Ennis uh, avoids a lot of the uh, uh, sort of artsy fartsy uh, pretension that. Uh, inflicted several vertigo publications of the early 90s and he went straight for the the blood and guts and uh the grit and the sex and all of that stuff and uh some of it was pretty clearly gratuitous just intended to entertain but uh a lot of it was more than that uh ennis was doing all of this uh with a couple of points to make in mind and i uh, appreciate that uh, he's got a couple of interesting things going on here he's trying to uh well 
to paint a picture of American manhood in many different manifestations, for one thing. Uh, he's uh, addressing the myth and legend of the Old West, both historical, you know, the myth of uh, the West of history, the West of rumor, and the West of popular culture, film, and so forth, hence the uh, spirit of John Wayne uh, sauntering around. And um, there's also a nice little love story between uh, well, Jesse and Tulip, of course. And, uh, and uh, obviously there's a pretty heavy dose of religious satire. That's probably the uh, main point he's making with the series as it goes on. Um, but I think all of this can be tied under the umbrella of, a, well, well what, what Preacher is more than anything else to me anyway is a tall tale. It's an example of that uniquely American narrative form, you know, relies heavily on flamboyant exaggeration and uh, sort of the canonization of uh, local folk heroes in the form of uh, rough-hewn, homespun myth-making. And uh, the, this is definitely an exaggerated story happening here. Lots of things that are way over the top in a couple of different ways. And we're talking about a preacher man from Texas who's possessed by the spawn of an angel and a demon and goes on a walkabout around uh, the nation and the world trying to hunt down God and hold him accountable to all of his believers whom he has abandoned by quitting and clearing out of heaven. That, it sounds like the kind of thing that somebody like a Pecos Bill or a Paul Bunyan would do. Um, so that, 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 to me, that is the storytelling vein that Ennis is employing here, and he's doing it to great effect. And I will echo what you've already said about the art, Brian. It's, uh, Dylan's artwork is just it, it, it's as versatile as it is gorgeous. It's just as sharp and as beautiful as a pearl handle on a knife, which is just what you need for a series like this. Um, and he's able to keep up – Dylan is able to keep up with Ennis trick for trick. You know, whatever territory Ennis roams into, be it geographical or topical, emotional or thematic, um, that artwork can keep up with him. It's uh, loose enough to go cartoonish for the sort of broad, brutal satire and blood and guts comedy that Ennis goes in for. But it can also tighten itself up and turn – serious, you know, on a dime, uh, just to, to support uh, pathos and human drama. You know, it's, uh, he, he can convey real, quiet motions of human emotion, and he can also show people's brains being splattered on the wall, you know, with equal aplomb. And uh, we also need to give a little bit of a shout-out to the uh, livid, vivid hues of uh, Matt Hollingsworth, the colorist, who is not afraid to be bold and bright with his color palette in a time when uh, is the uh, preferred uh, color scheme for Vertigo titles, the, the house palette, if you will, was more like beiges, grays, and browns. Uh, he dips into the um, gaudier stripes of the rainbow, and it really makes the book that much more visually enjoyable for it. So, yep, I have uh, read these first... Uh, you know, 12-plus issues. I am uh, have not been driven away as of yet. I'm uh, really quite intrigued. And uh, I'm since we've got uh, the entire series right here in front of us, I will absolutely be reading more of it. But now let us hear from the uh, preacher veterans on the line. Billy, go ahead. <laughs> I don't know what to say even, you know, past uh, birds. You know, he pretty, he pretty much summed it all up. I'm sorry. I did it again. Um, oh, that's okay. <laughs> it was thorough. It was excellent. Yeah, yeah and no, preacher is... Uh, like a hundred shaggy dog stories fighting each other to death in the <laughs> middle of the Utah desert. It's a great image. Um, this book is all characters. Um, and one of the most fun things that I, I personally take away from it is, is listening to those characters tell their tales. There's almost every single issue. There's like two pages dedicated to some weird walk-on character telling their life story. In, in some very amazing, frank, just really awesome way. Um, that's that's got to be the part that uh, that, that uh, I enjoy the most, definitely. 
<laughs> yeah. Aside from that, I don't know where else to go. You know, you well, got the wacky violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got um, Steve Dillon's art. Actually, um, I was talking to Danny about this. She picked the perfect word to describe the art that he uses for this book, which is almost intentionally ugly um, because of the ugliness of the world that it depicts. I haven't encountered Steve Dillon's art in anything else um, the same way I have in Preacher. It's, it's, it's really beautiful line work, the, the heaviness of the lines and uh, uh, just their solidity. It, um, I've seen some of the stuff that he's done for Wolverine Origins and, and it just wasn't, wasn't the same. So this book is, is one in a million for the, for the art and for the story. There was nothing else like it at the time. Uh, it is completely unique. Uh, that's all I have to say. I'm sure I'll have more to add in. Uh, well, now, Bill, how did you come to Preacher? Did you read it when it first came out? No, I didn't. I was working in a comic book store, um, but I was very young. I knew of it, and I'd flipped through some issues and was uh, was drawn to it, but I didn't get to read it in its entirety until I was in college. Um, during which I, I, I read the entire nine volumes in a single night. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And then slept through class in the morning. Um, Ow. Uh, yeah. So that was an experience and the book is, it's so moving. Once I started, I can't, I can't stop it. Um, it really is just, it just takes hold of me and I got to get through the whole thing, uh, before I go on to something else. Well, to piggyback on what Billy was saying uh, in terms of the addictive quality of when it comes to reading Preacher, from a retail perspective, I'm sure Bill can echo this. When someone comes into the shop, and once we've sized them up what kind of reader they might be, and we give them Preacher Volume 1, almost without fail, they're back for the rest. Mm. This, is, this is a series that my wife has read this, and many people who, when I know their sensibility, when I give them this book to read, they read the whole thing. And I'm sure Bill has had the same experience uh, in the store more than once. Oh, uh, this is this is a, this is an when we talk about evergreen, mm-hmm. this is like this is the this is the star on top of the evergreen. This is this is a book that never fails, with rare exception, unless someone is very religiously sensitive or something like that. They're going to go in for this book because, and now for me to to build to build on what I just said, for me this is one of the most moving finite comic series I've ever read. It's definitely one of my all-time favorite finite series. And as you, as you mentioned, Pants, first of all, you've got the same creative team and their vision throughout the entire series. And you you, you rarely see that in, in a finite series. Yeah, it can't be overstated enough. Yeah, no, I, I, you hit the nail right on the head because... And when and, and I can imagine, understand why Bill read the whole thing in one night <laughs> you know, during his uh, Devil May Care college days because... <laughs> If you once you you get into this world, it, it absorbs you immediately. And I, I mean, to start with the chronology for me, so I was intro- I was introduced. This, this came out in '95, and I read it not necessarily right from the first issue, but maybe I read one trade, then I started buying the monthly. So I, I read most of it in in the monthly format. And by the time it ended, which I want to say was 2000 or 2001, something like that. Uh, yeah, episode, uh, episode issue 66 came out. A uh, cover date October of 2000. Thank you, sir. So I, I had a shop by then, so I was getting the last few issues in the store uh, as they were coming out. I, it, it was, it was, this was in my wheelhouse right away. I mean, 
as Murd mentioned, first of all, it's it's the way it addresses the old West. And we talk about American history and just when you talk about the mythos of the Old West and the place it has uh, in, in, in sort of our actual history and then sort of our, our, the myth of American history. And I think Innis really tackles that in a very effective and poignant and unvarnished way. And I think what epitomizes that is how he uses the ethereal presence of John Wayne uh, in this story. Now – I have a complicated relationship with John Wayne uh, in terms of his movies. I grew up in the late 70s and 80s, and John Wayne movies were on chat TV all the time, especially on weekends and uh, on like, like local like WPIX and channels mm-hmm. like that. And I watched as many as I possibly could. I'd watch with my father, my grandfather, and you know, many of them I, I fell very much in love with. And, and to this day, The Searchers is one of my all-time favorite movies, period. But as I got older and I started to read more about John Wayne himself and learn more about American history, I, I saw the divergence between the myth of John Wayne and the reality of John Wayne, who frankly was a warmongering chicken hawk who I don't really admire at all. But <laughs> in terms of the myth that he presented on film, that still captivates me in certain films, The Searchers is especially so. That's actually one of his most complicated roles uh, in my opinion. Um, and I love how Innes applies that myth because Jesse Custer, when I wa- see him watching John Wayne as a kid, that reminds me of when I was a kid and how taken in I was by the world of his films. And you know, like in in many, not all, but in many cases, sort of the black and white aspects to them in terms of you know the good guys, the bad guys. Now, some of the movies are more complicated. I like The Searchers, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, for example, which are both classic John Ford films. But I love how Innes tackles that. Myth of the American West. Now, Jesse Custer in his journey, you know, because he grew up watching those films too. So he, he kind of is moving through um, his quest to the United States and beyond, searching for God. And he's carrying that sort of that mythos with him. It informs how he dresses, how he walks, how he speaks, sort of his code of honor. And in, in this story, I find that as the, his character develops throughout, he's far more. Uh, um, Far more John Wayne than the real John Wayne ever was, and uh, so that that affects me deeply. Now, beyond that, what I love about Preacher, what I love, I should mention, Garth Ennis is one of my all-time favorite comic book scribes. Bill will attest anytime anything he does comes out, it's, it's on my order list right away. It's usually usually his books are on the top of the pile for whatever week they they come out. I think his military history comics are just they have no equal. And I'd like to one day review Enemy Ace, for example, on this program. Oh. I think that's one of his finest efforts. But this is my introduction to Innis. I never, I, like, I hadn't read Hellblazer, like Murd mentioned that. That's in, uh, precedes this. I had never read Demon, his work on Demon. Um, I don't even know if I'd heard of him actually. And that's my, that's to, to, to that's that's to my detriment, not to, not no fault of, of anybody else's. So when I started reading this, I was so deeply moved because I understood even then, but even more so as I got older. That preacher and really a lot of Innes's work, Hitman as well. When you when you yes, there's the ultra violence and and, and you know the the fun tawdry uh, humor and and the, the incredibly dark humor, all of which is right very much up my alley. But when you when you not look past it because it's all part of when you when you go deeper than that, his stories are very much morality tales. And there's a, there's a strong moral center to his stories, and I think the preacher, what, why it moves me so much is a, it's a story about loyalty 
to the people in your life who you love, to your friends. It's a story about honor and your sense of honor. It's a story about love, uh, love when it comes to love with your family, love with your parents, you know, your, your lover, your, your girlfriend, wife, whoever. And it, it's, it's also a story about faith. And I'm someone, and this is just my personality, I, I, I am someone who completely rejects blind faith in all its forms. I, I find it actually quite disturbing from an historical perspective on so many levels. And what I appreciate about preachers that for me, Innes is addressing the concept of what is faith? What does it mean to have faith? And faith in what? Is it faith in a god? Is it faith in, in, your, in your significant other? Uh, faith in, in an organized religion? And as Murat said, there's a lot of satire going on in here. Um, but even deeper than that, this is, a, this, is, this is a story I think with a very strong secular, I think ultimately, moral perspective. And it's if there's any book that was written for me, this is the comic book, uh, essentially. Besides Priest Black Panther, of course. <laughs> so yes. I, I've been very excited to talk about this. And you guys mentioned Steve Dillon. One thing I want to start off the bat about Steve Dillon. I don't think anyone more ah hell number one. I don't think anyone more perfectly captures the shock and disbelief in the face of someone who's been shot the way oh. Dylan does. <laughs> oh, that's in a, magnificent! In a, that, in a way that it's 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 funny and horrifying all at the same time. Like in in the, in the when Tulip shoots that guy in the car, yes, and he shoots <laughs> off the bottom. Like Bill's laughing because it's funny, and the the guy's eyes are just a gog. Like what the hell just happened to me? And it's hilarious. But it's also frightening at all the same time. And, and no one – as you go through the whole series, no one captures the, that look of just shock and disbelief that, oh, God, I've just been terribly wounded better than Steve Dillon. Um, and, of course, Ars Face is his masterpiece. Yes. So you know, we'll get into all of that, but this is a book I'm really pleased and honored to be addressing tonight. By now, the way, Pants, you'll appreciate that I have three sketches from St- – by Steve Dillon hang in our store. I've probably seen, seen them, them, yes. Tulip, Arseface, and Cassidy. Now, I went – this is at a show in New York City right around the time when Preacher first came out, so the mid-90s. I don't remember where the show was. It's, it's no longer a show that's being run. And I went there with my dear old friend, uh, well, Ryan, who you know, and also Randy Roscoe, co-founder of Wild Pig, with me. Dylan was doing sketches for free for everybody in the line. Wow. Now, this is like 1995, 1996. I don't know if you'd ever see that today. But you know, I got Tulip and Randy got uh, – Cassidy, Ryan got Arseface. They just donated in the store, but I treasure those sketches, and, uh, and they were free. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, now, Danny, is, is Danny on the line now? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Splendid. So we've just started giving our opening thoughts, Danny. How did you first come to Preacher, and what are your um, initial thoughts of the um, book? Oh, wow. When did I first come to Preacher? I don't know. Probably late 90s, I'm assuming. So before it ended, though. Okay. What? Before it ended, you actually were reading some Preacher. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I was reading it, like, when it was, I think, coming out. But I think I was... was, Were the trades coming out when it was coming out? I can't even remember. Uh, At least the early ones were, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So I think I read the early ones, and then I was just waiting for... I started trying to pick up... Uh, single issues and then it wasn't worth it and then I just waited for the trades uh, interesting you know I loved it when I read it back that was probably when I was you know late teens early 20s and then uh, rereading it uh, the first two well first trade and a half uh, 
it didn't hold up as much as well for me this as I've gotten older. I feel as if I've uh, not grown out of it, but it just didn't hold the same weight that it used to. It, it felt like it's definitely a product of its time. I don't know. I don't think it holds up as well as I thought it would. Daniel, let me ask you a question. Now, this came out in 95. Mm-hmm. Do you think this book also worked at the time because it was very much in the era of, of Tarantino breaking? Yes. I yeah. absolutely think it has. I think the reason why it was so popular, Bill and I was, were discussing this uh, last night, so I don't know if we if he talked nope. about it at all. Okay. Um, we were talking about last night that <clears throat> it seems around that time, this probably broke a lot of ground because it was so violent and so out there and so over the top. Like, I don't think a lot of things existed like this at that point. No. And, you know, I lump it together with like Transmet where it's just crazy off the cuff, um, very ridiculous. Uh, I mean, it's around the same time that I guess uh, Kevin Smith started coming out with his movies, which were very vulgar. Um, I was actually thinking about this too. Uh, People refer to, uh, this is completely uh, wrestling. They refer to the attitude era of like the nineties and late nineties. Like they're, I'm curious what was going on in the world at that point <laughs> that made like bringing up Tarantino. That does make sense. Like there, there's definitely a, a, like a time of just this over the top violence that uh, was reflected in our uh, vulgar aesthetic. Yeah. In our pop culture. And I really think that this is a product of it or just, you know, it came out at that time. So it was so groundbreaking and this ridiculousness. And now rereading it, I kept going like, this is so juvenile. <laughs> like, there were times where I just went, this dialogue is so vulgar and juvenile and stupid. I can't believe I'm reading this. There is a reason why <laughs> Wizard was so fond of it. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not to say that it was bad, but I do think um, at the time it was amazing, but I don't think it holds up as well as I thought it would. I think, you know, the the morals and the, the storyline, but to me, certain aspects, the overtop violence... The uh, the language that's used, it's just a little too much for me now, I think. Oh, I, if I can build on that. Certainly. Uh, because like uh, Chris was saying, you know, this was your first introduction to Garth Ennis. This was same with me. Um, this reread, I, I do have to admit, because, well, uh, of course, you said, you know, we're doing the first two trades, so I read the whole thing. Um <laughs> This reread was a little bittersweet for me, though, um, and I think it's because I don't think I stuck with... I mean, I've read a lot of Garth Ennis, and I love, love, love Preacher. I love this book. I don't think I will ever not love this book, but I feel like... I feel like Garth Ennis hasn't grown that much from doing this book. And, and you know... Reading this through the lens of history, you know, knowing all the things that he was going to go work on afterwards, you know, the boys and and uh, uh, red team and and all this stuff. Like, I feel like he hasn't really progressed that much past the past the antics writing, um, and and past the the shocking and and gross. So, I, don't, yeah. I don't think that's the case in his military comics, Billy. His military comics stand apart, and he's still yeah. the best military writer. Um, 
of of uh, anybody working in comics right now. It's the genre that he's most inclined to take seriously, I think. Yes. And that's the stuff that I actually enjoy reading more from him because it doesn't have some of the antics and, and as Danny was putting it, some of the juvenile language. Nobody's in a police station complaining about how the coffee tastes like semen. <laughs> but I, you know, my, I think my other favorite work by him was his Punisher Max run, which, and purely for the Punisher bits, because the Punisher was a no-nonsense soldier, and some funny things would happen occasionally, but... Um, well, I, I, th- I think Punisher Born's one of the greatest war comics I've ever done, oh, definitely. frankly. It's, um, it's a masterpiece. Darth Ennis treats war with, with gravitas, and that's that's what I most enjoy reading from him. It's when you get into the other stuff, and the the uh, with the like the silly sexual stuff. I know this is past this book of the month, but when you get to the Jesus to Sod storyline, I just <laughs> check out. Because um, it's just too ridiculous. Ah. <laughs> oh. Fantastic. God, I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, because I think you guys have articulated for me another reason why I'm kind of glad I waited until now to read this stuff. uh, Because, as you've said, uh, as the culture has grown more and more in this direction, uh, we've all collectively become a little desensitized to this stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, the edge of the original material has dulled a bit for us, but uh, for a reader like me, that's actually kind of a good thing. (laughs) And good call on the Tarantino influence, too. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I just – I mean I was thinking about – all right, when this I, – I, I forgot the exact year. I saw it was 95 when I took the copyright. I thought, okay, so 95, Pulp Fiction was 92, I believe, or 93. Uh, you got True Romance around that time. Natural Born Killers from Oliver Stone is around that time, which is a way over-the-top ultra-violent film. Yeah. Uh, I think Danielle mentioned Kevin Smith, correct? Yeah. Yep. Uh, like, like Clerks was 93 or 94. In uh, fact, I think I think Kevin Smith does an introduction to one of the early trades. Yep. Actually. He does. Well, he does. Yeah. Yep. So I think Mallrats was 95, something like that. So I think Daniel has a good point. It's kind of like all this stuff is in the zeitgeist of the popular culture of that time. And I, I agree with her that, uh, you know, that kind of depiction of violence, you know, well, you can go back to films like The Wild Bunch, for example. It wasn't like it was completely new, but you, you were seeing it in, in a way that really was. Uh, I remember how startling it was for people uh, at the time. Like, like when you went to see Pulp Fiction for the first time, I mean, people were just floored by that film, and or Reservoir Dogs prior to that, um, and the way those characters spoke in those movies, and all the pop culture references, for example. And I think Preacher, and not to take away from what Ennis is doing, because this is clearly he and Dylan's own vision, but it, I think it's definitely part of that milieu, so to speak. So I think I remember at the time seeing this work described somewhere in the fan press as pulpit fiction. <laughs> <laughs> great pun. I don't think I can take credit for it, but great pun. Actually, when did um, when did Kevin Smith's Dogma come out? If we're th- you know if we're thinking of things that are uh, that almost was early two thousands, yeah, that's, that's my least favorite Smith so, film. Yeah, yeah. Um, late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, I, was, I think I was like nineteen or twenty when it came out. That might have been inspired by this, so the cycle continues. <laughs> yeah, nineteen ninety nine. I came. That's out. what I would have guessed. And then Jay and Silent Bob strike back strikes back two years later, two thousand one. All right, do you want to dr- jump into the first issue? Any other opening comments they want to make? No, I just I don't know how much guys want to go in depth in issue by issue, but I let you guys do what you want here. But uh, yeah, I think it was um, a very good first issue. How it just introduced everything in the way it was told with the you know flashbacks and then the introduction of all most of the main characters that you're going to see over the first arc. 
Well, I like how they they use the narrative framing device of having the three main characters sitting together in the diner, and they're recounting what happened that the reader hasn't actually seen yet. Mm-hmm. And they kind of take it's a good narrative device. They take you through how the characters all come together. And I was also fascinated now and then by Innes's depiction of the hierarchy in heaven, and how there you know these various uh, types of angels and almost like this futuristic. Uh, Installation where where the Genesis being has broken out from, um, and and right away, you know, and especially now because I haven't actually read this story since I first read it in the 1990s, like this first arc. My favorite arc in Preacher's War in the Sun, which is a couple arcs down the road um, from what we're looking at now, and I've read that more than once. But I was just I was just really as I read this again, I, I was. Really, I was absorbed by it right away. I couldn't put it down. I read, I think I read the whole book in one night. One thing I like about what he's doing here is that Innes isn't afraid to play with caricature, which can be clumsy depending on how you do it. But, you know, like the sheriff is like every good old boy, badass, white trash southern sheriff you've ever seen oh boy, in TV or film. But again, as, as Murd mentioned before, Innes is definitely going after archetypes in this story. And, you know... That that sheriff, you've seen that sheriff a hundred times in, in different types of media, mm-hmm. and not being a fan of people like that, I really enjoyed his fate in the story, and uh, I, I just I enjoyed how Innis sort of attacked some of these archetypes. Um, but what what I love from the get go was first of all, Cassidy is automatically captivating, and remains one of the most I think one of the most compelling characters in the whole saga. Especially as we know going forward, there is a lot more to him than meets the eye uh, as a character. And what I also found most compelling and, and still to this day and terrifying and riveting is the Saint of Killers, oh, yes. which, I think is, which I think is one of Innes' greatest concepts basically. So those are some of my, my initial thoughts on the first, the first issue. Murray, uh, you read uh, this for the first time. What did you think of issue one? Uh, I'm afraid to open my mouth now. I, don't, I want to leave some things on the table for other people to discuss. <laughs> I'm gun shy now. Nonsense. Sorry about that. No, no, it's it's uh, it's I who's sorry, Bill. I it, it, it's it, we'll it, have it, a bit I, more of a, a, a tete-a-tete. All right. Um. Well, I agree with Chris that the diner scene is a, a an effective framing device, and it's a well, further evidence of the Tarantino Tarantino influence, since he seems to enjoy uh, watching well depicting skullduggery being plotted or discussed in a diner setting. <laughs> it's also something of a vertigo tradition, just thinking back to well, Sandman and what Dr. Destiny uh, accomplished in a diner one day. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yep, the portrayal of uh, the heavenly host as a bunch of uh, well, self-interested, ineffectual, bungling <laughs> bureaucrats. <laughs> well, it's almost like a little caste system. It's like the Adefi, the scientists are the bureaucrats, and then there are the uh, vainglorious uh, military angels, the uh, – uh, what's – what is that host called? Yeah, Seraphim. Seraphim. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of like the military-industrial complex there. So they're all just cogs in this malfunctioning political machine that's lost its operator, God. And uh, just uh, this, they're depicted as all too human here. And uh, it's, it sort of reminds one of uh, the depiction of uh, the Greco-Roman gods in uh, like the, the latter days of uh, Roman theater. They were, they were played largely for comedy. Um, 
you know, spoofed pretty mercilessly. So that's uh, sort of the fate of uh, religion in its dying throes. And that seems to be what Ennis uh, believes of, uh, well, the Judeo-Christian mythology of heaven. And that's what he's showing us in this first issue and what he'll continue to show us as the series wears on. Um, yet I, I do echo uh, uh, Brian's sentiment about uh, the effectiveness of this first issue in general, just introducing all the important players you know, you know, succinctly and uh, tantalizingly. And uh, kudos, I think, needs to be given to uh, Stuart Moore, the editor, uh, for signing off on allowing this first issue being double-sized so that Ennis has all the space he needs to tell us all of this and hook us all in <laughs> so well. One of my – probably my favorite image from the entire you know, first arc that we're, the 12 issues we're discussing here happens on uh, – well, in my trade, it's uh, page uh, 32. It's when Genesis shows up at Jesse's church, bursts through the wall and possesses him. It's, it just comes streaming right at him, like looking like this fireball made out of molten rainbows with a screaming baby head in the middle of it. And it's just <laughs> yeah. coming straight at Jesse's face. And what I like – I'm sorry. I mean to interrupt you. That, that final panel – where Jesse's up in the air reminds me as almost an homage, if you will, to the Superman number one cover. Right, from from 1939. Yeah, oh, yeah. Good point. Good point, Panther. Yeah, that's yeah. that is a good call. Yeah, and for whatever reason, that image is much more striking and memorable to me than the full page splash on page 34 yeah. Yeah. of uh, Jesse with the image of a hybrid angel demon uh, behind him. Mm-hmm. It's uh, I don't know whether it's just uh, the the rainbow fireball image is just less generically expected, a little less hackneyed. It doesn't rely so much on the uh, classical depictions of angels and or demons. It, it just it, it's or maybe it's just Matt Hollingsworth's colors. You know those. Uh, it's like somebody uh, threw up a, a paint set and it has a baby's head in the middle of it. It's just <laughs> <laughs> it, it, very memorable. Uh, it's uh, the runner-up would probably be uh, Grandma Marie uh, going off like a firecracker close to the end of this arc. But yeah, that, that moment oh, that was is immensely satisfying. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so yeah, and as Chris said, we get to meet Tulip, and we get to meet Cassidy, and we get to meet the Saint of Killers, and then there's Sheriff Hugo Root. Yeah, and as Chris said, he is the archetypal redneck hometown sheriff, only more so. You know, and it really intensifies that uh, that stock character uh, exponentially. And uh, um, he's the first of I mentioned earlier on that uh, one of the things Ennis is doing is uh, reconsidering depictions of masculinity, ideas and ideals of masculinity in uh, American culture, and um, not all of them complementary. And uh, Hugo Root, I think, is the, like the first major example of that. He's just so surly and sullen and uh, xenophobic and closed off. Um, one of the things we learned in Bowling Green. Uh, I took a class on women in action genres, so we learned a lot about uh, the depiction of genders and gender roles in uh, action-adventure narratives in film and elsewhere. And uh, you know, one of the uh, the archetypal traits of uh, action heroes is that they're, they're grim and uh, stern and closed off, and uh, they don't let much emotion in or out, and uh, Hugo Root is that taken to pathological extremes. And, uh, of course, his impenetrable uh, veneer of masculinity is very graphically penetrated by the end of uh, his arc of the story. (laughs) Kind of an uh, ironic extrapolation of uh, his uh, xenophobia. He just – he wants as little to do with uh, things and people that are not like him as possible, you know, with his worrying about Martian niggers and so forth. Um, But in the end, uh, his fear of that which is different from him leads to him uh, being penetrated by himself. (laughs) <laughs> the end. <laughs> I'm so glad Mert addressed that. Oh. <laughs> You're welcome, Chris. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a book that 
that pulls no punches when it comes to uh, racial sensitivity or sensitivity of any kind, really. <laughs> True that. Um, but it is a book that makes sure that everybody who's on the wrong side of those issues uh, uh, typically gets their comeuppance. That's right. Morality tales, as Chris said. Yeah, exactly. It never it never lands on the side of anyone who is uh, who is racist or or misogynist or uh, uh, any other undesirable quality. I thought the the final page of the first issue, when you see the Saint of Killers revealing, you know, his holstered uh, six shooter, which of course never runs out of ammunition. And then Jesse Custer just goes bang. Uh, what a great way to end that first issue and to make and really, I can only imagine because I didn't read the first few issues as they came out monthly. I can only imagine the, the anticipation for readers uh, for the second issue to see what was going to happen with this entity. Anybody, you mind if we move on to number issue two? Any other comments about issue one? It's also one of the more I think sought after back issues of the last Absolutely. twenty or so years. Okay, good thing because I did actually buy a copy of the first issue at a. A flea market for a, a dollar <laughs> or two. Wow, really? Yeah, well, this is years ago, but uh, yeah, it, I, I hadn't. I, it was the first issue of. Pre, I hadn't even bought my trade yet, uh, but I thought, okay, I'll buy this and try it. Uh, I heard there's armadillo buggering involved. Uh, this is just too over the top for me. To, <laughs> of course, that doesn't happen until much later, but uh, uh, much later. But yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm glad monetarily at least that I picked up that first issue. Well, you ought to find it, and you know. Let me see it. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't have the overstreet in front of me. I want to say it goes for at least fifty bucks. Uh, Is that right? It might go upwards of one hundred or two hundred, depending on the condition. But anyway. I'm not going okay. to let you see it, Brian. <laughs> I'll, use, ah! I'll wear my gloves. We had a customer who uh, who had put together an entire run of uh, the original series in issues, and uh, that that was amazing. He was telling me the uh, the letters pages were were. Oh, the letters pages were, are fabulous. Oh, that's one thing. I'm so sorry that I'm not seeing in mm. these. Collections that would oh, must yeah. be incredible to read. Me too. Well, oh, there's none in your first issue. They pull it out, Mer. We'll take a look at your uh, letters comps. <laughs> Any Ennis Helmed letters page is always a treat. Hit, Hitman was the same way. Now, when I look at issue two, and you go to that splash page of, of the Saint of Killers opening fire, Ugh. and the title and hell followed with him, I hear Johnny Cash's voice <laughs> reciting that line in the song "The Man Comes Around." in that gravelly tone. And uh, granted, that song came out after this comic, but wow. I mean, you talk about violence that is thrilling and terrifying all at the same time uh, as you read this. And because you don't have a lot of sympathy for the sheriff and his underlings, but at the same time, like when the one deputy is dying because his intestines are hanging out and the other guys tell him just to kind of be quiet as you die and you feel their terror and their panic because they, they obviously have no sense of what the hell are we dealing with here and, you know why can't we stop this guy essentially now we have to remember later on the saint of killers will of course be destroying tanks with his pistols <laughs> so you know this is this is obviously a supernatural being but i think these these opening scenes are compelling because even though the, a lot of these these deputies they're not like people you feel a lot of emp- like you, you're rooting for them you still you feel their helplessness and their panic as they're just slaughtered like sheep, uh, essentially. And uh, you really – and again, we mentioned this earlier. I don't think anyone captivates the moment of death in all its absurdity the way Steve Dillon does. Violent death uh, like this. I mean noses flying apart, teeth being <laughs> punched out, people being shot in the face, blood spurting. I mean it's 
it's very much in keeping with the ultraviolence of that time we were discussing earlier, but I think it's it works. And and it's when he comes walking out of the flames and Jesse says, Tulip, get in the truck now. Oh. It's cinematic. I mm-hmm. mean, I think we have also to mention what a great storyteller Steve Dillon is. Um, how he 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 orchestrates this 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 carnage essentially uh, in the sequence. Now, Billy, I mean, as as a an artist of skill yourself, what do you, what do you think of, of the way he does the scene? Oh well, about- Steve Dillon, uh, Steve Dillon's uh, uh, storytelling in the in the whole thing is is just masterful. Um, I I. Just going down to the texture of the panels, which remains <laughs> consistent throughout the book, um, it's one of the things that, that really lends itself visually to this book itself. Um, I've never quite seen anything like it in any other comic. Well, yeah, you, um, just, you just said that, and I'm looking through the rest of these things, and the panels all have that just slightly wavy border, and I never yeah. even noticed that till you yeah, mentioned they're all, that. They're like, all jagged as hell. Jack, this is, yes! This is a book that is literally rough around the edges. Oh! <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, you just... Oh, yeah. Great quote, great quote by Billy. There you that's go. Put that in the liner notes. <laughs> Tucked away. Um, yeah, no, this is, this is such a great opening scene for The Saint of Killers. I mean, he ended on uh, that last issue on a great Clint Eastwood quote. Yes. Um... But you don't look like the man who's going to take him. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's just—he's my favorite uh, character out of this book. Um, he's just this specter of death that that haunts the entire story—a uh, specter of violent, unstoppable death. And Bill made a good point when he referenced Clint Eastwood because, again, one of those Western archetypes Ennis is applying here. You know, like the unstoppable gunfighter that Eastwood often personified in his films. Mm. And he takes it here to this supernatural and terrifying level. It's, it's like all – like when, you, when the Old West and its reality, and you see this in the show Deadwood, was dirty, ugly, coarse, violent. And the Saint of Killers just – he's the – he encapsulates all of that, like – Take out the supernatural, that's the West right there in that character. That's what the West really was. It wasn't, you know, Roy Rogers singing on a horse, you know, and, and white men pretend to be Indians in films. Like, this, this, is, this is the West, and uh, it's powerful. That could be what the Saint of Killers is representing, where you have, you know, the, the ghost of John Wayne helping uh, Jesse, that, that vision of the honorable West handed yeah. down from movies and tales. Um, and then here is his polar opposite, the specter of the murderous West, the, uh, the, the, one of the darkest times in, in American history, definitely. Um, just a violent and unpleasant place to be. It just manifests itself in the story of the Saint of Killers, which you, you get to read about later on in the series. Mm-hmm. Billy, well put. And, and we have to remember that if you, if you look at American history uh, throughout but especially in this period, let's not pull any punches. The United States and its culture is, is, a, is a history of violence and war. It's one of the most warlike cultures in human existence, in human history. And many other countries can attest to that, I can assure you. <laughs> um, so it's – God, I'm glad Billy's here. Masterful. <laughs> uh, what do we think – go ahead. What do we think about the use of Kurt Cobain's fate? Um, when we get to the, to the sheriff discussing, I think it's with the FBI agent. I, I love their their dialogue, by the way. Um, what do we think of that application? 
Because Cobain had just died, I think maybe a year before this book came out. Maybe, maybe he was even sooner. I don't remember. He was ninety four, ninety five. He he, he it took was his 93. own life. Three. Was it ninety three? Okay, oh, I apologize. Could have been nine. I was thirteen, so it could have been ninety three, ninety four. April nineteen, April fifth, nineteen ninety four. Okay, I thought it was a little bit later. So I would have been thirteen. Yeah. Well, this is. Uh, I mean, this book is is the American dream. You know, in in as many uh, varied facets as it can present, and I think the use of Kurt Cobain is uh, to Arsface uh, introduced in this issue. Poor fucking Arsface. Uh, <laughs> Kurt Cobain is to him what what uh, John Wayne is to to Jesse Custer. Well put. Um, well put. This this vision of of the the American dream personified. You know, unfortunately for our space, I, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, whatever the whatever you'd use, he he lived through um, his ordeal uh, to carry on as this farcical character, one of the one of the strangest characters, not just in this book, but because that's that's a freaking list. <laughs> now, I'm sorry, but go ahead. In yep. comics entirely, our yep. space stands alone. Well, and to add to that. <laughs> I think this is one of the greatest transitional introductions art-wise of a character ever in the history of the American comic book. When the sheriff shows the FBI the photograph and then you turn <laughs> the page, I mean, you can, I mean, that is such a seamless transition. <laughs> and you're, you're horrified and laughing all at the same time because the fact that they're translating for you yes. what he's saying because <laughs> you suffer this horrific self-inflicted wound. And th- again, to me, this this is just... It's such good writing because it's so absurd and over the top, and it's such pathos at the same time because this kid's trying not to have a relationship with his father he probably never had before he tried to take his own life. So you're very cognizant of the kid's trying. At the same time, like you're laughing because you know, you're, you're reading this dialogue like you're watching a foreign movie. And, and uh, <laughs> like what do you guys – I mean you know – like Bill's given his thoughts. Like Murd, first time you've seen this. What did you think of Arseface as a character? Uh, well, again, Wizard kind of spoiled that for me uh, some twenty years ago. Um, so I knew about Arseface. I knew his uh, origin in the broad strokes. He was trying to emulate his hero Kurt Cobain and uh, botched a suicide attempt and ended up with a puckered ruin of a face. And, and you're right, Chris. There, there is a definite pathos uh, inherent in uh, his trying so hard, like uh, you know, eager little puppy dog. This kid who used to be a rebellious teenager is now reduced to oh, practically begging his father to pay attention to him. Uh, and old Hugo Root remains as closed off and stoic as ever. As in uh, going to the scene between his uh, superior and the FBI agent, uh, he reveals that Hugo Root's parenting – the range of his parenting skills goes from uh, beatings to uh, cigarette burns. So that gives you an idea of the kind of uh, home life that uh, uh, Eugene, a.k.a. Arsface, had even before all of this happened. Um, but uh, re- reading through it now, I mean it's – oh, and uh, just as a side note, uh, I don't know what this says about me, but I was able to – Okay, decipher about 60% of Arsface's dialogue, even without the given translation. What? <laughs> I don't know what this about you. I didn't even bother with that. Yeah, just follow the cadence and the <laughs> the, the, the consonant sounds. and uh, you can, I, Nobody you can... does cadence quite like Garth Ennis. Mm. Um, he is, he is uh, for everything else, a, 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 an utterly a master of that. Um, he nails song lyrics. He nails, like, the noises that you make when you're just kind of Bum, bum, bum. Like, 
it, he would capture that perfectly in a word balloon. Uh, it's it's a tremendous skill. Mm. Agreed. Well put, Billy. And while we're talking about song lyrics, let's also give a shout out to Willie Nelson, who gets quoted at the beginning of the first issue, and uh, who is heard at the beginning of the first episode of the Preacher TV yes. show. That's oh wow! Don't think they nailed that. the soundtrack. <laughs> I'm looking forward. To, I haven't seen it again. I'm looking forward to watching it. Mm-hmm. Well, you will hear it, Willie Nelson. That, <laughs> I love Willie. I love Willie Nelson. All right. Now, getting back to Arseface, um, I'm going to name drop uh, Bowling Green again. Um, something else that uh, I learned in uh, one of the couple of pop music classes I took while I was there uh, about Kurt Cobain uh, was that he and uh, well, musicians of his generation, kind of the whole grunge movement, uh, represented a new recodification of uh, masculinity for the mid-1990s. Um, it's, uh, it was representative of a more sensitive, artistic American manhood because the 90s was kind of the rise of the sensitive male in reaction to the strong, silent type of decades past. And uh, Kurt Cobain, in per- uh, his particular brand of masculinity was, that, well, similar to Jesse Custer, you know, as educated by John Wayne and by his father. Uh, Kurt Cobain had a certain code of honor that he followed, and he just hated the idea of his music, you know, the truth-telling that he was accomplishing with his music uh, was being corrupted and commodified by, you know, big industry. And as a result of that, uh, he, out of this sense of honor, he you know, took a gun to his face. And, uh, but, uh, and uh, Ars Face, uh, uh, you know, stumbling awkwardly along in his uh, idol's footsteps, attempts to do the same thing, and all he gets is horribly disfigured and an even worse life than he'd had before. Uh, so see this as Ennis's uh, commentary, perhaps, on what he thinks of this uh, sensitive uh, uh, Seattle-derived uh, mid-90s uh, masculinity. And I, I don't think uh, Ennis... Uh, Ennis is pretty particular as to which uh, strains of masculine ideology he respects. And I'm not at all convinced that uh, he thinks that highly of Cobain, just based on how he treats poor Arseface here. So just to look at the, the contrast between uh, Arseface and his father. I mean, neither one of them is uh, what Ennis seems to be telling us is a respectable mode of masculinity. But... Uh, in the end, Arseface is the one who uh, doesn't ends up with his own dick up his ass. Think of it that way. <laughs> now, th- that reminds me. There's several times in this, this story where there's homoerotic humor or references to homosexuality that – I want – I'm just a people's opinion that I, I, if they use that today, do you think it would be – how how do you think it would be um, – not accepted is the right word. How would people you think would react to an audience would react to that today? For example, later on in the story, John Wayne refers – the, like the, the myth of John Wayne that is personified in front of Custer refers to him as a faggot because he's not sort of standing up for himself. Um, how do people react to that as, as they were reading this, reading it in 2016? Um, My reaction was simply that uh, John Wayne is not as right and as trustworthy as uh, he might be on the surface. And uh, does Jesse – I mean I've, I've never – obviously I haven't read past the second trade. Does Jesse ever come to a similar conclusion? Is there ever a parting of the ways between the two of them? Uh, without spoiling too much, you know, they, they do eventually part, but uh, not in the metaphorical sense. They never tend to disagree. Uh, John Wayne's mostly just a, a guiding angel uh, for the most part for him. Yep. Beyond that, I just said, okay, he's – well, you've already said it, Chris. Uh, the man himself was not as uh, respectable as some of the heroic roles he played in film. So I just kind of shrugged and said, yeah. He's a ghost. Just, he's of another time. As long no, as- exactly, and I, I just found it interesting because you know, someone like that 
the Wayne personification is very much of another time, and it's an idealized time mm-hmm. uh, at, at that. And I, I just, I just, I just found it interesting because it, you know, again, just times change in terms of what what's being written, how people express themselves. I mean, like when you look at issue two, when Jesse and Cassie get in their first of many brawls that they have with, with you know, roustabouts uh, throughout the series. And, you know, he's talking about how he's calling one guy essentially a, a homo and the guy reacts very negatively. Then, of course, he sticks his fingers up his nostrils and beats him to a pulp. Yeah. Um, and this, of course, we also see Cassidy revealed – his true nature is revealed for the first time. Oh, yeah, it's the end of issue two cliffhanger. Yes. What, what, what was our reaction to that? The knife protruding from his glasses and the – Well, if you were paying attention to the first uh... – to the yes. first, then you, you already knew something was a little bit off because right. uh, as he's making his escape with Tulip, he gets shot in the side of the head. Yeah. Tulip goes, I didn't even know you uh, got hit. And uh, he lies and says, ah, oh, it grazed me. <laughs> <laughs> I also enjoyed um, when they show Cassidy uh, mauling the guy's neck at the, the last the splash page at the end of issue two. Definitely a different take on the vampire. Uh Sort of mystique, like mm-hmm. this is not like you know, like the yeah. central, like you know, kind of leaning the woman's neck back, and she's in ecstasy as he punctures her. I'm like, he's just tearing his neck apart, right? No. And just making a meal out of it, essentially. So, it's not a clean surgical procedure. He's ripping your oh. effing neck tendons out. So yeah, so yeah. Even though I knew you're again, wizard spoiling this for me. Cassidy is in fact a vampire. Um, I wasn't expecting him to feed in quite that graphic a way. So that was something of a surprise. Looking closely, he doesn't even really have fangs. No, No, actually, they say later in the book he doesn't have fangs at all. Yeah. One thing I've been wanting to get my hands on for years is the Cassidy blood and whiskey one-shot, which directly contrasts Cassidy as vampire to the cult of Anne Rice that was kind Ah. of semi-prevalent in the 90s. It sure does. You get that in – it's just included in the normal stuff now, so you'll you'll actually get that in volume four. Five, I think. Yeah, all uh, the one. Bill's right. All the one shots are interspersed throughout the various uh, collections. Yep. Uh, is the Saint of Killers miniseries in there? Yep. Yes. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, they actually do. Yeah. So they have the uh, Space mini, the Jody and TC story, huh. and huh. the story of the Saint of Killers, all in. Well, it was volume four. I'm, I'm guessing probably book two. Uh, uh, now, so yeah. They, I mean, those are. I don't even know why they did them as side stories because they they tend to be pretty integral to what's going on in the main series. Yeah, I don't even know why they were put separate in the first place except maybe to give Steve Dillon a break on art Mm -hmm. and and just to maintain, I guess, a rigorous uh, uh, publication schedule. And then later on you get the origin of Star, which is just tremendous. What do we th- we haven't talked much about Tulip yet. Now, what do we think of, of as her characters developed in these opening issues? Because she's one of my favorite characters in the whole series, actually. What what do people think of her and, and the way her character is, is introduced in these opening issues? And her, I, and her and her dynamic with Jesse. Personally, I think that Garth Ennis didn't know who he had on his hands at first. <laughs> Because her her introduction in the book is is very unceremonious. You know, we we find out that she came to be there because she botched a hit. The tulip that we come to know over the course of the book, I don't think would have botched that hit. Mm, um, that's a good point. So she was, so she is right quite a depth of the pistol. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that Garth Ennis knew exactly where she was going. But once he realizes, you know, who he's got on his hands, who Tulip O'Hare really is, then then you start to see some really fun stuff. She doesn't 
uh, take a, anything from anybody and is a, a total badass character. Mm. Do we eventually see some glimpses of her like early life, like before she ever yes. met Jesse Custer? Oh, yeah. All right. Very good. Much There's so. actually a really – that's a really, really moving story, um, and it moves along very fast. Yeah. Her and her father. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Okay, good, because you know, we, we do learn from this first trade that that's where she got her marksmanship, where she yep. learned to shoot. Yep. Um, but yeah, just reading directly from my notes about Tulip here, she comes across as a strong, self-reliant, believable character, but uh, lacks a bit in definition. And, of course, that is just uh, referring to her, her appearance in the first 12 issues. And uh, I, I, I was also hoping, and, and you've uh, you know, fulfilled that hope for me, Bill, that uh, eventually we'll get to see a little more of her, her background and uh, uh, just, just fill in some gaps in her character without just defining her strictly in terms of her relationship with Jesse, you know, that, that her history with Jesse. And I do think that uh, her interactions with and attitude towards Jesse, for, for better or worse, are believable here. But I, I was hoping that there'd be a little more to the character than that. Uh, but, yeah, I do like what we have on paper so far. And uh, uh, this is the last thing I'm going to say about Preacher, the series. I, I do think that one of the things that the pilot did as a disservice to the, to the, the comics, I, I think the, the tulip of the comics is much better than what we got in the TV show. Oh, I completely disagree. <laughs> I was in love with the pilot, Tulip, where first 12 issues of Tulip, I she's very weak. She's not... She's she's defined by Jesse. She's not her own woman. I do agree with you there. She's just there as a love interest, like what Bill said. Like I don't. It's been so long since I've read it, so I don't really remember what happens. But rereading it, I think some of my problems was the fact that it's like you guys keep talking about masculinity, masculinity, masculinity. There's nothing here for me, and I think that's <laughs> I think that's part of the problem. Like Tulip. She's very weak in this. She's just there for Jesse. She's just a love interest. And, like, the whole time that him and Cassidy are joking, oh, I'm going to have sex with her. Like, Jesse's coming off as a douchebag saying, oh, I'm, I give it three days and I'm in bed with her. Like, it was almost like that was his goal, even though he's like, why are you sticking around? You're only sticking around because you want to have sex with me because you still love me. And And it's like, but at the same time, this crazy thing happened, and you have the word of God. There's probably, I mean, I'm sure she still has feelings for him, but of course she's going to stick around because this is craziness that's going on. And she's got, uh, she can't really go back to where she was because, you know, she owes a lot of money to a hitman and stuff, so, or the, the whatever that guy is. So, I mean, to me, she doesn't, she's really a blank slate at this point. She doesn't really do much for me. And I, I didn't actually enjoy the, it was very guy talk. Like I'm, oh, I'm in a boner. Like, you know, it's just kind of like, I, I don't know. It bothered me. I have to, I have to agree with Danny. I, I really, really liked like that. The tulip on the screen, um, made a splash and made an awesome character that was, I think more worthy of, of, uh, that introduction, um, Tulip is, is worthy of that introduction, and I think... Because that's what as, she turns into. In exactly. The, in the, that's what she book. becomes more closely to the to the end of the book. I am glad to hear that. Um, and and I... Because th I think when you do read her backstory, Murd, you'll find... I think you'll find the same thing, that, that knowing, the Tulip we come to know deserves a much more satisfying 
um, opening splash, yeah, entrance, yeah. and and the TV show delivers where the the comic uh, uh, pales a little bit. Yeah, because I think there. introducing her as an inept hitman doesn't do her any justice. <laughs> You're like, oh, look, weak character. No, and it won't make sense in in light of her um, backstory, frankly. Uh, and and so and, and I think the introduction is far weaker than the backstory. Oh, I do look forward to reading the backstory. You know, and if I weren't uh, well, if I weren't concerned about spoiling uh, the uh, members of the discussion who haven't seen the pilot yet, I'd uh, I'd engage a little further as to what it is I didn't like about uh, TV Tulip. Yeah, but stick to the book. We'll leave it on the yeah, table. We'll have, to, we'll have to talk about that. Uh, that will be for a future discussion. But indeed. All right. Do we have other comments about this first arc that you know Sheriff Root and you know the confrontation with the Saint of Killers? Anything else that people want to touch upon in this this first sort of arc within this volume? Well, I, just towards the end, I, I love how we have the the hints of of what's to come. It's like looking back because I've I've read the whole book now. Looking back, reading this stuff again, it's like oh wow, it's it's a lot of the stuff's just right here in this this first this first arc, and that last image of the first arc. With that, with he's looking around and have the crutch standing tall. That's just an amazing splash page. And I turn around and throw it right back. Yeah, that is a great page. I was also amused by when the angel appears. Uh, this is on page 116 in the, in the book one that I have in front of me. Then behold, O oh mortals, the glory of the heavenly host. And he just says, cut the shit, William. And he appears as one of these Adelphi... Uh, sort of bureaucrat angels and you see jesse you know using the word of god of course to gain to extract information and they kind of you know, go into you know what was the no pun intended the genesis of all this so i found that very interesting what do we think of what happens to root and arseface at the end are we on gratuitous humor pathos both what i mean well yeah as, as i said what the end that Root comes to is, is kind of a perfect, graphic, ironic extrapolation of the xenophobia he's exhibited all along. As far as Arceus goes, he seems to be starting off on a heroic journey of his own, and at this point, I can't even begin to visualize what shape that might take. <laughs> Relatively arse-shaped, Merton. Oh. <laughs> arse-shaped. All right. Um, Puckering up for yeah, that. He gets, he gets his own sort of coming-of-age of story. That uh, that takes some some strange turns along the way. Do we get uh, to see uh, what he was like before the incident? You do. That's what his uh, his side story was. The the his miniseries story was uh, is him sort of telling his backstory, Forrest Gump style. Mm. Um, um, is, is it uh, telling it aloud? So do we need the uh, translation captions, or is it an internal monologue? It starts the one, and then it goes to the actual history, and you're you're experiencing it as though you were there. You you go to flashback, um, so you don't have to read tons and tons of of our space garbling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sheriff Root. The funny thing about Sheriff Root, like, I don't think he got. He definitely. Uh, uh, I don't know. I don't want to say he got what he deserved, and and. Um, it definitely comes out that uh, Jesse didn't intend it that way. Right, yeah. This is a recurring theme, then, that the word of God is uh, more literally interpreted by those under its spell. That oh, it's, God, yes. That I, it I, has, I'm thinking, it has I'm thinking consequences. Of, I'm thinking of pebbles of sand on a beach, Bill. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Yeah. Um, he, it's more like that it has, that it has consequences. Um, that, he, that is a very powerful weapon. It's the most powerful weapon. He can simply command people to do what he wants. And, uh, you know, he, he, he does some, uh, philosophizing on that, on that point when, you know, should he use that, uh, power versus meet out some more earthly justice. I was going to say, if you want to move into the next arc, uh, which taps another one of the favorite, one other favorite '90s trope it's often, which is the serial killer. <laughs> it's a vertigo favorite subject. Yes, it sure is. I wonder if he made it out to the serial convention. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Billy. Well done. Uh, what I really liked in, in this part of the story, first of all, the scenes where the three of them, the three main characters, are talking and. and Kind of circling each other conversationally, and you, you you really appreciate the growing bond between Jesse and Cassidy. It's it's juvenile in some ways, and of course you don't. Again, a, a perceptive reader might notice that Cassidy. There, there, we don't we don't have a good grasp of who he really is, um, essentially yet. But like like we've kind of said, there's there's a lot of male bonding in this book. Um, and, and, you know, it, Daniel's shaking your head vigorously at this point. And, you know, <laughs> and some of it is playful and good-humored. Some of it is very stereotypical. Some of it is, is deceptive and creepy um, in a way. And, like, for example, in, in this story you have the most hapless police officer in the Vertigo universe, which is uh, Detective Tool, with uh, Paulie Bridges, who was referred to as Super Cop uh, in his first appearance. This is not too different from uh, Detective John Soap of uh, Oh God, the uh, Punisher. His Punisher books, Martin John yes. Soap, the the hapless task force of one charged with bringing down the Punisher in New York City. Mm, yep, definitely saw the parallels there too, Bill. What did we think of uh, Cassidy's pal? Uh, what was his name again? Cy? The journalist, mm-hmm. Cy. Cy Coltrane. Cy, yeah. Cy the Space Cadet. Yeah, creepy. I yeah. liked him till you know, creepy. Till he starts murdering <laughs> people. Mm-hmm. So, Danny, what do you think of him again, Danny? I think it's a little creepy. <laughs> okay, I wasn't sure we like conveyed creepy that. from the beginning, or, I mean, he just... or creepy after murdering people. Yes. No, I don't remember because I, I couldn't remember <laughs> if he was a serial killer or the cop was a serial killer. But even just like the one, the panel on page one thirty six in the trade. He just looks so creepy at the bottom corner. <laughs> he does have kind of a shit-eating grin. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, Dylan just draws the creepiest, ugliest characters. But, like, ugly in a good way. Right. Artfully ugly. Yeah. Well put. Well put. Well put. I also enjoy how you start to get... You're intrigued by like, all right, how old is Cassidy? Like, you really want to know as as they just go into like, side, like Bill said, every character they introduce gets like his quick side story that like you, you, you they immerse you into every character, even if it's just briefly. And as Side talks about his experiences with Cassidy, you really want to learn like, all right, how old is Cassidy? What in history has he seen? Um, and and they they really you know kind of at least for me they really hooked me on. I want to learn a lot more about this character. You know, obviously you know he's he's Irish, but you know. How old is he? What what has he experienced? You know, he was at Woodstock, for example. So, um, that 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 I, I that really hooked me on the Cassidy character. And, I, and Bill, based on what you said, I can't wait to see how he's portrayed in the, in the television show. The 
basically ha- knowing his his cadence and 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 his demeanor as an actor, um, I started reading Cassidy in his voice and and uh, was not let down when we saw the TV oh, show. Wow! Another thing I liked about this issue, and I'd love to hear people's thoughts on it. Throughout Preacher, Innis always again with the same thing with the Old West. He addresses American archetypes and like the myth of America, which you know perhaps foreigners learn through through American movies and so forth with the reality. And when Jesse goes, because he's never been to New York City before, so he goes to different sites. Then he goes to the Empire State Building, um, and he, you know he climbs to the he goes to the top, and, and just what do people think of just what Ennis is doing here with just the notion of America, which is a theme throughout the whole series. And what America means, you know, myth versus the reality, uh, essentially. Because he's, he's writing – he's an Irishman, so he's writing – no, he obviously lives in the United States now, but he's writing in a sense as, as, as someone who's visiting this country. What do people think about that? Hmm. Well, it seems like he's uh, making the grand tour as, uh, as a writer, you know, just uh, moving his characters from spot to spot in this nation and uh, taking a few pages in each little arc to uh, – uh, stop and have the characters or uh, reflect upon so that he can reflect upon these things through them uh, the, uh, uh, the the mythoi that develop uh, around uh, specific locations like the the, the, the local uh, uh, well mythic uh, images that develop around them so he we 've talked about the old west at length and i 'm sure that 's the, the the largest and most thoroughly explored uh, regional mythos that he gets into in this series but here I'm glad you brought it up, Chris, on page 147 in my trade. Uh, just Cassidy and uh, Jesse standing on top of the Empire State Building, looking out at the still-standing Twin Towers of the World Trade Center. And uh, Jesse musing to himself, since he's no less an outsider to New York City than Garth Ennis himself would have been, about how from that vantage, every movie, like every popular myth he'd ever consumed about this place seemed as if it could have been true, a kind of continuity happening down there amongst all those um, yeah, way down in all that smoky streetlight is the exact expression he uses. And uh, he, Ennis goes on to do the same thing for a couple of other regions that uh, these characters will be visiting in uh, the next couple of issues. They head uh, far down south to Angelville and out to San Francisco and uh, every step along the way Ennis seems to have a couple of things to say about uh, the uh, uh, popular, uh, well, uh, well, some, in many cases, fictionalized conceptions that exist about these places. Yep. They had also, the, I'm sorry, but go ahead. Valley at one point. Um, they had the New Orleans at one point. Alamo. Oh, yes. <laughs> also, on that same page, where it's actually when we find out how old Cass it is, he says, "I'm the same age as the century." So. Yeah. And boy, do they do a lot with that in, in subsequent issues, too. So, Murd, I envy the journey. <laughs> it's heck of a ride so far, Chris. <laughs> yes, I, I, Cassidy's such a strange character because I want you want to equate him, like, right away to this sort of classic, like, straight out of the songs, Irish Rover. <laughs> um, you know, Mrs. Cassidy's son, he isn't working. Um but I, I also wonder if he represents because because of the places that he's seen and he drops these little hints about who he you know associated with too like you know Bill Burroughs and stuff like that if he doesn't also represent this this sort of 
drug-filled psychedelic haze that possibly infused some sort he's, of... He's like the counterculture vampire, essentially. He is. Yeah. yeah, counterculture vampire is kind of the perfect way to put it. Um, this part of counterculture that, uh, to complete the metaphor, sort of preys on people and, and drains them dry. Well put, Billy. God, I'm glad he's here. Um, what what was our take on? Because this is kind of another trope: the, the self hating uh, gay man. So the the police officer uh, Bridges. Hmm. Um, how do how do we react to him? This is just another, I think, element of of. It's a product of its time. It's a product of its time, and it's also a, a, a another example of Garth Ennis's very very rough take, I guess, on on basically any se- uh, topic uh, which somebody might want to, say, pull back and look at more sensitively. <laughs> and this might have been a reaction to, I mean, PC growing as a thing, too. In yeah, the- and PC was a big part of our culture at the yeah, time. And it, yeah, and it's still, you know, the, that, that sort of, uh, those sort of anti-PC feelings, I mean, they're rife in this country right now still. So this is something that um, I think as a, as a people we haven't gotten over. Um, Garth Ennis pulls no punch about any sort of identity politics, but he always comes down on the people should be allowed to do what they want to do as long as nobody's getting hurt. Yep. Paul Bridges is just another example of the sort of demented masculine philosophy <laughs> um, that, that, punishes itself for, for, you know, doing something it, it wants to do, even though, uh, or I guess, uh, uh, while that thing is, you know, out of uh, the scope of what masculinity is for him, you know. And Bill's raised a good point, because we, we, lest we forget, political correctness as a term and as a movement, I don't know if you, well, I don't know if it's really an organized movement, but it was very, it was saturated our popular culture, uh, certainly in the mid-1990s. I mean, that term was everywhere. And certainly a lot of films and, and books and so forth and comics, I think, as Bill said, were sort of responding to that and sometimes in, in a subversive uh, manner or, or they were like reacting to it and sort of pushing back. Because I, I remember at the time, you know, so there, was a, there were debates about, you know, is, polit- is political correctness stifling free speech? Is political correctness, you know, suffocating? Is it going too far? You know, is it. It's a dilution. You had the you had these conversations that were going on, you know, in in, in different forms of media. So I I think Bill's made a good point that you see that here in, in its own way and in this book, uh, essentially. Yeah, preachers preachers' heart is usually in the right place. It just Absolutely. does not um, it does not weaken its language at all for anyone. So you know, if it's the words that are going to upset you. Then they're going to upset you, but the message is uh, is definitely something I think that that one should take away from it. Did we know right away he was the serial killer? No, they let us. They strung us on for a little bit. Yeah. What'd you uh, think, Mark? I uh, did not pick up on the fact that Sai was the killer until fairly late on, um, and I agree with Bill that I found him fairly likable as Venice met us too um, until. Right about the part he drove that dagger through Tulip's hand. Yeah, what a scene! Uh, and you know, I I appreciate uh, Ennis's uh, take on uh, Sai's motivations for doing what he does. It's simply that it was fun, 
and that he kind of got hooked on uh, uh, trying to push his little game further and further to see how much more outrageous, uh, horrible, bloody things he can get away with. Uh, that strikes me as kind of a – it's a fairly – well, to a point, it's a plausible motivation for someone to do the kind of things that he's been doing. Um, maybe not in and of itself. There might be something else going on psychologically beyond that. Not that he's going to, the character is going to tell us that. But, um, but yes, it's one, it, it ties into one of the things that you said earlier about uh, well, uh, the, uh, the ethos of Preacher, um, you know, sort of the code of honor that Jesse comes to exemplify of uh, uh, honesty and responsibility and forthrightness. And uh, Ennis, uh, stepping back a bit metatextually, I think he's uh, trying to – he's doing his part not only to uh, – explore certain myths, you know, e.g. the myths of the Old West and of New York City and so forth that we were talking about just a little while ago, but also to explode certain other myths, many of them related to uh, organized religion, say. Um, and one of the things he's doing here, I think, in uh, revealing that Psy became a serial killer just because it was fun was an attempt to cut through some of the BS surrounding serial killer narratives in Vertigo Comics and elsewhere and just saying having this right bastard decide that he uh, was going to kill people because he accidentally discovered he enjoyed it. Now, when we get to the point where we learn that uh, he's well, not only willing to kill his old friend Cassidy and uh, Tulip and Jesse into the bargain, and he also uh, apparently at some point killed his parents and put them in the freezer at their own apartment, uh, that's when I think it goes just maybe a tiny step too far. Uh, and uh, maybe at that point we need a little bit uh, more uh, to, to explain why this character's motives than just it was fun. But uh, I, I still appreciate Ennis uh, uh, trying to be a little more well, surprisingly straightforward about uh, his uh, doping out of the motives of this character. And you have to enjoy the way he ended up dying. Oh, absolutely. Jesse using that word in a way he has not to date attempted. Well, and this is in that scene, I mean, you really... I mean, I, I agree with Danielle... Uh, I love the Tulip character, but the Tulip character we know really is developed further as the series progresses. I'm really looking forward to seeing how she's portrayed in the show based on what you've just described. Uh, but you, you certainly under, you see there, you know, obviously that Jesse, for all his some of his macho posturing about, you know, I have a boner that can knock down a door and so forth, that he's obviously still very much in love with this uh, girl. And obviously, when we get to the Angelville story, we we can appreciate, you know, the horrible, horrifying circumstances of why he actually left her. Um, but I, I thought those were powerful scenes. And again, Cassidy is so endearing. When they have him in the morgue and he sits up and asks you know, <laughs> the, the morgue worker for the, for the light. I mean that's just classic in his humor that just – and it's so, it's so emblematic of that character. And it's just – it makes you like Cassidy so much. And as, as Ennis develops him and he becomes more a complicated character, I, you really appreciate in these early stages why he's portraying Cassidy the way he is. And uh, it, it really sucks you in, and you like the guy so much. Um, so it, it's that's it's a great little moment. So yes, the, uh, he's the life of the party. <laughs> yes, what, who he's supposed to be, I think. My take on Cassidy is that uh, he exists. He may feed on blood, but he exists in this story to suck the pretentiousness and conventionality out of it. He's there to well <laughs> keep things honest, so to speak. And it's a, he's a familiar voice, you know, an Irish voice, if you will, for for Ennis to write and think through. Uh, but he also well, helps to keep things uh, starkly and frighteningly real. You know, whenever uh, Ennis gets to like uh, the smell of his own shite too much, as it were, <laughs> he does that too. But he's also uh, full of his own self uh, quite a lot, uh, Cassidy. In in many ways, he's also there to, I think, illustrate how 
just how, you know, off so many of these myths are from reality. Mm -hmm. Um, that he's a, he's a walking exemplar of not, you know, the, the, the real thing, not living up to the legend. (laughs) Um, and you know, you'll, you'll read more about that, of course, in later installments. Blood and whiskey. Blood and whiskey. (laughs) Well, as we, as we move on to, uh, Angelville, right, Bill? Uh, yeah, Angelville. Yeah. I have to. I have to leave about fifteen minutes. So if you don't mind, I'm going to leave with some comments um, on this arc. Is that okay with everybody? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, by all yeah. means. Um, this is my favorite part of this first book. Uh, this this story um, for a couple reasons. One, I find Jody one of the most terrifying villains ever portrayed in a comic book because. <laughs> In, in in so many ways, you can – taking out the supernatural aspects because you know the word doesn't work on him and so forth, you can imagine someone like him existing, uh, and he's frightening because even though he's very much coming from a community of pure white trash, there's a sinister intelligence to him. He's not just some mindless cretin who, you know, there there's something that like there's there's a and he, I think Jesse even acknowledges that in the story actually. That this this guy is very sharp and and, and deadly uh, in his own way, but what I really loved in this arc was the love story between Jesse's parents, um, because and again this and this shows his, his his understanding and his application of history. You know, the Marine comes from Vietnam. Uh, he has this inc- and this this didn't happen as much as our, I think our popular media portrays, but it did happen. Where he's spat upon by you know the erstwhile hippie and called the baby killer, and then Ennis just punctures all that, and they kind of end up in each other's arms. They had this moment of like clarity between them when they both realize like, what are we doing here? And you know, you really, you really love. I mean, personally, I really love the the, the brief relationship he develops with his parents. Like they show that his parents have, and and it makes it all the more poignant when that relationship is torn asunder. By uh, Jesse's mother's past, her family, so to speak. Uh, just, just quickly, what do people think of Jody as a character? Oh, he's he's frightening as anything. You nailed yeah. it. Um, he is the original. He's, God, he's just psychopath. He he he's sadistic. He lives to to hurt any living thing in as creative a way as possible, and. Uh, and, and I don't know. I guess ride horses and smoke weed and all that other <laughs> stuff too. But he's just a he's just a pure bona fide bastard. And yet, in his own way, he no less lives by his own moral code than 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 Jesse does. Yeah, and after that, Jesse that is done beating him to death, his last words are "Proud of you." Proud of you, boy. Yep, because he finally he finally stood up to him and beat him. And like you said, murder. And again, I'm skipping it because I have to leave soon. I apologize. But when in that climactic battle, when Jesse says, "I'm not going to make you drop the gun," I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight you. I mean, and you see how proud Jody is of him. Like that's like his son. Like he's raised like to be this man essentially by putting him in. Like when you think about what they did with the coffin, I mean, it, it's to me that this this story is where you really understand who Jesse Custer is because it's his origin. Like this is where he came from, essentially, and you appreciate. All the more, what kind of man he is? Because, I mean, granted, this this is many ways over the top. I mean, the grandmother is just, <laughs> you know, it's 
You talk about Pulp Fiction, but – It has to be 110. Yeah. <laughs> and she had like a kid when she was 50 or something like yeah. that. But, um, you know, so there's a supernatural element to her, and they have her talking to – is it God? Is it an angel? She's communing with somebody essentially in her bedchamber. You really appreciate – I'm sorry, obvious. Bill. Go ahead. Sorry. It's pretty obvious. It's God like right away. Yeah. Hallowed be thy name. Yeah, and the fact that Custer comes out of this hellish upbringing, and he's – you appreciate the fact that even though he's, 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 a, he's a product of this community, ultimately he's more a product of his parents and the love that they shared and the, the lessons that they taught him. And you really appreciate the strength of his character that he, he held on to that through this hellish existence he experienced. You know, and, and when you look <laughs> – and again, I have to go back to what a great artist Steve Dillon is. What, what's the name of his one-eyed incest friend? Billy Bob. Okay, when he goes to Billy Bob's house to tell his parents that his son is dead, and again, it's, it's such a point of moment because that was his only friend. But then Dillon shows you the expressions on this family as he enters the house. Oh, yeah. And how they're just such a product of incest, and it's hilarious. Yes. But it's also so sad at the same time because his only friend has been brutally – has had his throat slit. By uh, Jody's sidekick. Uh, again, I mean, Dil- no one does these expressions better than Dylan. I, I mean, ah, yeah. The expression on the face of Billy Bob's uh, one-eyed sister, who is also his yeah. bride to be, as she wails, yeah. "Billy Bob!" Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> that, that, that stuck with me, Chris. That's so a point well made there. Yeah, and when you show up, when they first introduce Billy Bob, and he's bare-chested with the pants kind of tucked up, he's got his pants in his pockets. And you see, like, he's just this sweet, simple kid. Um, and then Grandma makes him sleep in the barn when he stays over you know, at, the, at the compound and so forth. And you really – I mean I think this is great writing. This is part – you really feel for this poor, benighted kid uh, and, and, and what he's a product of uh, essentially. I, I just – for me, this, this is the heart of, of, of the series, this story to, in many ways. Like just what made Jesse Carson. You really appreciate – how he came out of this and what and what kind of person he was. What did we think of when they show him as like a 17-year-old as a teenager and, and he's out and about and he's like, you know, the, got the cocksure personality. What did we think of his encounters with Tulip and how they meet each other? How do we react to that in the beginning of their relationship? Do we see it more as like romantic myth or do you really feel it or what? Oh, they have a, you know, they were made for each other, love yeah. at first sight sort of relationship. So yeah, it's it's definitely the the myth of romance. I love you to the end of the world. Yeah, that they can that they can meet in a bar somewhere and instantly go to, you know, Bonnie and Clyding it through <laughs> uh just stealing cars and running from the law and uh screwing on the side of the road. Um yeah, they're totally a myth. So and again, I'm skipping around because I have to leave, and I apologize again for that. But what did we feel – how did we feel or what did we think, I should say, about the presentation of God in this story? Because so, he, he actually it, – it, it appears as an anthropomorphic being speaking to first grandma and then to Tulip. How do we react to how, how Ennis handled that? Well, I, to, I was definitely surprised to see actually to – uh, to see God show up. So um, early in the series, yeah. So early in the series. And you know what? I think at all. Like, yeah. he says, oh, I'm going to go find God. And I don't think that, like, that first read, I really put it together. That, oh, yeah, no, what? Oh, God's in this comic. God's a character in this comic. <laughs> 
and uh, there he is, right there. Um, I, I, I think, I think Tulip cut right to the heart of the, uh, of, of the God character, um, which is that he's just full of, full of his own self. Uh, and, and that's kind of the point of the character. That's kind of the crux of the book, um, is the dismissing of, of myth. It seems like. What'd you think, Mert? Well, well, Bill said it. It's it. It, it is about a deconstruction of uh, old myths and preconceptions and long, dearly held tenets of uh, religious faith. And uh, God, as we see him here, you know, just a couple of limited glimpses. Um, we were told that at one point uh, the uh, quote special effect slaps, and Tulip is able to see him as just this. Uh, <laughs> little old man and uh, so and, and so god is being played here as kind of a tired bitter and uh, fairly obviously frightened old has been uh there's something blowing in the wind that's got god worried and that something is pretty obviously genesis the entity that's possessed jesse and has given him the, the word of god and uh so here god is trying desperately to hold on to what little power and prestige he still has in his own universe uh, he's reduced to bullying and hoodwinking his own minor human creations into towing the line he's kind of a frank morgan style wizard of oz humbug <laughs> and um I, I i do kind of look forward to uh, the the final confrontation between Jesse and God, when he finally gives God a piece of his mind, that I can, uh, I'm actually willing and uh, happy to wait a long time to see that confrontation because I, I want the build up to be everything it can be. Now, pants as an art lover, how about that page where John Wayne says, "Now let's see a walk the walk," and then Custer walks out striding, full of confidence and power, just saying, "You got it." Yeah, I mean, I'm, when you when you see that page, you know everybody's dying in the next issue. Like <laughs> no one is going to survive the wrath that's coming. Yeah, like the cigarette. I'm like it, it's again, it's such American myth, and it just, I mean, right down to like the black coat. It, it's oh boy, I love to own that page. Holy mackerel, it's just <laughs> such a classic. Oh man, and again, I, I, I'm a I'm a eye for an eye type of guy. I really enjoyed seeing everybody get slaughtered in the last issue because they're all scum. <laughs> yeah. So uh, grandma especially, uh, fanatic that she she is. So immensely satisfying. And I have to mention that I, I do have to leave, but when the last page where they're kissing and the flames are behind us until the end of the world, in my first shop, Danielle remember this in Boundbrook, my cousin is, who can replicate any image as an artist, she did a, a full window-sized mural of this image. Oh. And she wrote, you know, until the end of the world, uh, underneath it, uh, essentially. And uh, that was in 1999. That was destroyed in a flood, unfortunately. Oh. But I-, I love that image. I must apologize, my friends. I have to depart because I have uh, parent duty to attend to. And sometimes it does feel like D O O D Y rather than D U T Y. That's parenting for you. Yeah. I wish you all a wonderful evening, and uh, I look forward to listening to the rest of this as you uh, wrap it up. All right. And Billy, my friend, please join us anytime. Oh, thank you. Well, <laughs> that was, that was masterful back. analysis, brother. Masterful. I want to come back for uh, more of this, definitely. Outstanding. All right, all right brothers. I will uh, email you all soon and have a fine evening. All right. And Happy trails, Bill. Good night, sister, as well. Night, <laughs> <laughs> nice, sister. Farewell. Bye. Yeah, there was uh, – in that last issue, there were points I was literally cheering. And it's, it's very often you, you don't – you start – 
reading a comic book, you start having these kind of visceral reactions. <laughs> like, just the build-up is just like, it's like, like he said, it's like, oh, <laughs> this, man. This book is all is all viscera. Though. Oh, my like, God. You know, that's that's what it is. This is the payoff in a book like this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Man, just, um, what a great ending to a year's worth of stories. That, you know, it came out 12 issues and, like, the, the, the collection here. Just amazing. Yeah, I'm really glad that they ended with this story in the... Uh, in the in the new book structure right. because that really makes more sense where yeah. this is like the the ultimate sort of denouement of that first three story arc yeah because then you get into Jesus de Sade and uh, that's a whole other Ooh, yeah. barrel of weirdness <laughs> oh, glad we didn't have to do that this time <laughs> <laughs> but uh, man yeah so uh, I guess to follow up on what Chris was saying, you know, Murd, what did you think of some of these characters being a first-time person? Uh, oh, you mean from the uh, the Angelville arc? Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, Grandma Marie is uh, she's she's a, a terrifying old relic. You know, she's representative of uh, oh, and an, well, an an imperialistic well, 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 early American colonialism at its worst, I guess you could say. Um, you know, her her family, the Langelles, are said to have uh, converted the local uh, well uh, residents, the local Indians to right, corpses, right? Yeah. Like the Bayou uh, dwelling Indians, because it was cheaper than Christianity. Right? <laughs> you know, so revealing that their piousness was really just uh, a cheap veil for power hunger, which is you know a common criticism leveled at uh, religion, and certainly not a punch that Ennis is going to pull. Among the many other punches he, as you've observed, Bill does not pull in this story. Um, yeah, TC is an, um, amusing little fucker. Yep, and we, we've covered Jody, you know, just a monolithic, uh, sociopath that he is, but, but a sociopath rendered all the more frightening by the fact that, uh, his, uh, sociopathy is systematized. He has a code that he lives by and, uh, dies by in the end. So, yeah, it's a truly horrific extended family that, uh, Jesse has down there in Angelville and, uh, and this arc um, serves the purpose of uh, not only bringing us a couple of steps closer to uh, uh, catching God and cornering him, uh, but it also helps Jesse make a little bit of uh, peace with his uh, horrible past so that he can uh, then move on with uh, the quest on which uh, Ennis has launched him. Definitely lets him make peace with Tulip, too, at the end. I mean, you know you've gotten to the end of this one where it's like full-blown... Uh was it full bone like Django Unchained? Them, them kissing in front of the burning building, that plantation house. Yeah, yeah, it's in just this amazingly epic culmination scene. The uh, the only other thing that I I really wanted to bring up from this story is I think this is where Tulip starts to become Tulip, um, particularly after she's resurrected. Well, after right? she's uh, yeah, after she's resurrected, after she's shot in the head and resurrected. Um, this is a female character who refused to be put in like literally refused to be put in a fridge uh, right here that, that she was such a strong character that, that she's going to uh, come back and have an argument with God about why he is uh, kind of an ass and deserves <laughs> Jesse's whooping. Um, I don't know. What did you guys think of the, the well, Tulip's murder essentially as part of this book? I figured it probably wouldn't be permanent, but I didn't expect uh, God to be the literal deus ex machina that uh, got her out of that situation. What a twist. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm glad that they that uh, that Garth didn't uh, you know obviously throw away such a great character mm. so early on, um, and for uh, for such a uh, you know a tropey thing. Uh, well, at the risk of opening a or oh, well, reopening a closed uh, chapter, could I step back and say one thing about uh, the uh, New York sequence? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, sandwiched as it is between the Angelville arc and the original Gone to Texas arc, whatever you want to call it, um, it, it seemed to me a little superfluous in hindsight. It, 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 it kind of reads like uh, your basic plot digression, you know, just kind of a little filler arc in between two more central arcs to the ongoing plot thread. You know, in terms of the superstructure, the overall plot structure of the whole – the work as a whole, it probably wasn't necessary. Not to say that it wasn't a good rollicking story, not to say that Ennis didn't get in a few good moments and make a few good points along the way, but we probably could have done without it. Uh, the reason I even go back and bother to say this is uh, just to help to support a point that you made earlier, uh, Bill. One of the first things you said, actually, about how great the characters are in this series. And it, it, it feels to me that uh, the new, during the New York story, Ennis was maybe just kind of killing a little bit of time to buy himself time to puzzle out what uh, the, the, uh, the direction of the series was going to be in future arcs. Um, but I think at this point he had probably figured out from the response he'd gotten from readers that uh, with these really cool characters and this premise that he set up for himself, he could take these characters just about anywhere and do just about anything, and uh, plenty of people would be along from the, for the ride and enjoying the hell out of it. Um, so uh, I think this is where we, we learn just uh, what, where, where he kind of figured out that he had a, a hit on his hands. And uh, it's uh, about that time also that uh, several people came to the conclusion that uh, Preacher would probably make a decent open-ended TV series, which, uh, hmm. as luck would have it, is what we have now in 2016 got. Oh, yes. Uh, the, yeah, I'm really looking forward to more of that uh, series. I definitely see what you're saying about the, the NYC story. Um, it has a lot of fluff. It... <sighs> So it, it, like it is just a ro- another rollicking tale in in the drop of of this bucket of rollicking tales. But I, to a certain extent, that is what preacher fundamentally is. I think is is this rollicking tale. So it, it doesn't take us too far out of the way. Um, it gives us uh, the sort of idea of the kind of people who Cassidy knows, um, and the kind of and the kind of, you know it's it. It's sort of the first in this uh, uh, line of actions um, that, you know, Cassidy's involvement in Jesse Custer's journey. Uh, it, it, it's, it's the start of this pattern of behavior um, that Cassidy has. And, and New York becomes a very central location to the book. Like they always sort of bounce between New York and everywhere else they're going. Okay, so um, we will see more of that city. Yes, you will. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, are we going to see more of those police detectives? No, you won't. Okay. No, those are those are definitely well, well, a bit. yeah, yeah. There's like there's like a mention later on in the book, and that's about it. They're not important characters, to say the least. Okay. They were definitely sort of the weird, like one-off characters that that you meet. Uh, that are that are just sort of throwaway characters for for Garth Ennis, but I mean even he, them he used you know again for this uh, uh, running masculinity you know what is the what is the define what are the defining qualities of masculinity in in America in this time and place um, you know and those were just two more examples of of that I think um, as ridiculous as they were. Yeah. 
Indeed. Yep. Ultra masochism. Well, sorry. Uh, ultra machismo taken to such an extent that it becomes masochism. Yeah. And uh, and I guess I don't know. Uh, soap. Or, oh, I'm sorry. Was it soap or was it a uh, tool? Tool. Yep, tool in this universe. Soap was the uh, punisher. Some, some ridiculous four letter last name. <laughs> um, yeah. Detective Tool is. I don't know who Detective Tool is. The bumbling nice guy. The nice guy who always finishes last. No idea, uh, I or or you know just this just this uh, almost like uh, oh, what is it called like a like a harlequinade you know he's the he's the butt of every joke mm. uh, yeah. yeah but uh, he there's a bit of a reversal of fortunes there a, a destiny trade between him and his partner and he ends up the hero cop and his- uh, for a short while <laughs> for a short while yes. Then it's back to then it's back to his old misfortunes. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think bad luck catches up with him. Yeah. So yeah, that is kind of a difficult uh, character to read in terms of moral. But um, as the last uh, line of that story goes, uh, there are ten million stories in the Naked City, and not all of them have morals. Yep. Yeah. So that one, that one just might have been Sound and Fury, uh, like you were saying. Hmm. Um, but it definitely was Sound and Fury within the bounds of I think what Preacher was trying to be. Oh yeah. Yeah, it, uh, it didn't uh, advance the central plot of the quest for God, Danny, but it uh, did at least, uh, as you say, uh, build up some of the characters and uh, their connections and and uh, just uh, help further establish the uh, uh, graphic grisly tone that uh, Ennis is going to be using for the whole series. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think that's everything I wanted to say. Do you want to say anything? I've got nothing. Got nothing? You guys? No, I'm I'm good. We are similarly spent, I think. <laughs> All right. Um, want to take some freaking sweeter ratings, though? Oh, uh, sure, sure. Yep. I mean, I'd four and a half out of five just dip with the New York. But. Um, uh, maybe four and a quarter for me. Yeah, I was going to stick with the four and a. I don't want to seem like the harshest critic, so I'll say four and a quarter too. I was just going to go with four <laughs> stars out of five. It's an inauspicious. Uh, at times, start for what definitely is a five out of five. So you're saying it gets yes. better? <laughs> oh much! Oh much! They're right over there, Myrtle of the trees. I'll be taking number three with me. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, where do you weigh in? Uh, maybe a two or three out of five. It just it didn't it didn't grip me the way it did when I first read it. There was just something about it that I don't. I just didn't really care. I, I, I hate to keep saying that, but it just, it didn't, I have, it didn't, it didn't make me want to like keep reading or anything. Like it didn't grip me like it did when I first read it when I was in my twenties. It, it, there's a, I guess I'm just in a different time in my life that I don't really particularly feel like reading crazy over the top, ultra violent, uh, male bonding stories. <laughs> Yeah, we were talking about it the other night where I think, you know, reading this book through through the lens of maturity, because I read it in my 20s and so did you the first yeah. time. Reading this book through the lens of maturity is very, very much different um, than, well, reading it now. Uh, or, or I guess then reading it when we, we originally did. Um, yeah, and this has I... a red raw streak of, of just college boy antics right through the center of it. Yeah, and I'm kind of past that point where I don't really care about... I don't... I have no interest in reading about that anymore. 
But I mean, I'll keep reading it because I do remember liking it. And I, I want to reach the point where Tulip becomes really badass because <laughs> yeah. at the beginning she really is. I think part of my problem was she's just she seems so weak and I just don't really. There there's no male bonding for me. I just don't really care. Sorry, guys. Oh, that's, it's fine. <laughs> it, it, it does kind of fail the Bechdel test, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, and in fact, I, I think like Tulip becomes Tulip, woman. She becomes the archetype and 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 sort of the flag bearer for all women over the course of the series. Uh, um, the she is an archetyp, uh, archetypical. She's the woman in this boy's tale. She's the the feminist, um, and so on and and so on. You know, Jesse has a lot of those same views, but that's just sort of the service she provides in this in this book yeah i mean there's nothing wrong with a male bonding tale it's just i have no interest in reading that right now <laughs> all right well i guess that'll wrap it up for us then well in this episode against what brought to you by instocktrades.com at their website instocktrades.com visit it and check out all the fantastic deals they have on trades and hardcovers all that good stuff and if it's on the website it's in stock absolutely all right. If you want to leave us an email, uh, we're at comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. You can leave us a voicemail. We're 267-702-6642. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and Comic Geek Speak. You can join the conversation at thecomicforums.vanillaforums.com. We'll talk back about this episode as well as many other topics. Uh, I'd also like to thank everyone who contributed to the show. We really appreciate it. Could not do without you. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes, one listener at a time. 